My name is Anna Carter Florence, Associate Minister of the Church, moderator of today's forum, and our guest is Christine Vladimirov, President and CEO of the Second Harvest National Food Bank Network in Chicago, Illinois. Sister Vladimirov is an educator and a sister of the Order of St. Benedict, and her primary concern these last few years has been the devastating problem of hunger in our country. Through Second Harvest, she directs the distribution of food to thousands of food banks and community food shelves throughout our nation. Today, Sister Vladimirov will speak to us about this experience, and the title she has chosen for today's forum is Hunger in the Land of Plenty, a Paradox. Sister Vladimirov, it is an honor to have you with us today, and we look forward what you, to what you have to tell us. Welcome. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to be with you here today in Minneapolis at Westminster Town Hall Forum and throughout Minnesota on the Minnesota Public Radio. I commend you for the community service you provide in these opportunities for public discourse on vital issues. I'd like to take this occasion to discuss an issue that should be at the forefront of American social conscience, hunger. But I'm not referring to the tragic situation of starving Somalians that you have seen recently on your television screens or in local newspapers almost daily. The hunger crisis I'm talking about is happening right here at home. And unfortunately, it is not being covered daily in the media. And the government isn't sending in the troops to help combat it. Hunger in America receives a fraction of the attention that has been focused on foreign countries in recent years. It is as if, Amer as if we Americans can recognize the problem overseas, but cannot understand it or accept it in our own local communities. Now, it is not my intention to pit domestic hunger against international or global hunger as a cause or priority for action. I believe that the human family is one, and hunger has no frontiers or boundaries. But the spotlight for my remarks will be hunger in the United States of America, but in the context of global hunger. As you heard, the title of my remarks today is hunger in the land of plenty, the paradox. The title is neither original nor current. It was coined in the Great Depression of the 1930s by a journalist. He referred to the excesses of the 20s causing the deficiencies of the 30s. The surpluses wasting away in storehouses while the needy begged on the streets. Grocery stores full, shelves collecting dust because the public was unable to buy the food. Sound familiar? In the Depression, the food that people could not afford to buy piled up in warehouses or rotted unharvested in the fields. How could this happen? in America the beautiful, the land of amber waves of grain. How could it be that food was plentiful, but never found its way to the hungry? It was of this society, of this nation, that the historian Dixon Wechter wrote, and I quote, there is instinctive resentment of poverty surrounded by shops bursting with food and farms smothered under their own productive surpluses." End of quote. Gradually, the situation acquired a name, the paradox of want amid, amid plenty, or simply the paradox. I wish I could say today that things have changed. Unfortunately, we know that they have not. It was in 1937 that FDR said, I see a third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. Ill 
end of quote. We have not traveled far from 1937 to today. I am second generation American. My paternal grandparents came from Russia and my maternal grandparents came from Poland, fleeing both oppression, poverty, and hunger. My parents suffered through the depression, but we recovered. My mother and father were convinced and believed that this land would never again see bread lines, soup kitchens, food baskets, and Old Testament gleaning of the fields. They thought that was over with. They thought that their children and their children's generation would have a better life than they had. The paradox has returned. It is not due to a lack of resources, but due to a lack of distribution of very basic resources, including food. Now we must not only find a solution to the present situation, but a strategy so that the paradox will not return again in the future of this country. We together must find a way so that all people in the United States have food security and access to daily bread. Let me paint the picture of hunger for you in the United States. And remember, we are the country with the highest per capita food production in the world. 30 million people currently suffer from hunger in the United States. Worldwide, that statistic is 786 million people, almost one in every six in this global village suffer from acute or chronic hunger. Further, an additional one billion of the world's population suffer from various forms of serious malnutrition. Yet, in spite of the startling numbers shown in current statistics and the magnitude of recent crises reported in the news, such as the starvation in Somalia and now in Sudan, Global hunger has actually been on the decline since the 1950s. According to reports from the late 60s, more than 940 million people, or 36% of the world's population, were considered chronically undernourished at that time, as compared with 20% of the world's population in 1990. Decision to act and right choices have made the difference in those statistics from 36% to 20%. Acute hunger occurs in situations where the shortage of food is so severe that death is imminent. And we have seen those pictures in our living rooms. Chronic hunger, which plagues the majority of hungry people, including in the US, is found in situations where an individual's daily food intake is inadequate for health, growth, and minimum energy, and for whom the risk of life endangerment is very high. In many countries, particularly in areas where some of the most severe suffering from hunger occurred in the past, areas such as Nigeria, Indonesia, China, and India, Improvements in hunger and malnutrition are directly attributable to changed government policies. These changed policies devote more resources toward the production of food and food distribution with an eye on the goal of self-sufficiency for the individual. In the US as well, Changes in government policies in the early 1970s resulted in significant strides toward reducing hunger and malnutrition in our country. In the early 1970s, following an extensive assessment of the effectiveness and adequacy of existing federal food programs, Congress instituted a number of programmatic improvements, including one, the revision of eligibility limits and benefits in the food stamp program. Two, 
Introduction of WIC, that's Women, Infants, and Children, as a pilot project. Three, expansion of the summer food program for children. And four, passage of the nutrition programs for the Elderly Act. By the late 70s, the efforts of the U.S. government, coupled with an increase in private sector programs focusing on domestic hunger relief, resulted in dramatic improvements in the health and nutrition of low-income people and in a reduction in the number of Americans suffering from hunger. Furthermore, the sense among hunger relief advocates in government and in the private sector was that they were well on their way towards eliminating hunger in America. It was a hopeful time. Participants in the anti-hunger movement remember John F. Kennedy's words at his inauguration saying that in that decade he had two goals, one to put a man on the moon, excuse the language, and the other to eradicate hunger in our lifetime. That same era was moved by a Michael Harrington who wrote the book The Other Americans and moved the conscience of a nation to look at the issue of hunger. The global decline in the number of hungry persons in conjunction with the specific progress evidenced in the U.S. during the 70s support the assertion that reducing and controlling hunger in the immediate future is an attainable goal. However, as a report in the New State of the World Atlas recently concluded, and I quote, the world is capable of feeding decently all its inhabitants. That it is conspicuously not doing so at present is the product not of necessity, but of choice." End of quote. In the U.S. today, the choice is an evident and compelling one. The optimism and the momentum from the progress against hunger made in the 70s has largely been lost. Budgets for federal food and assistance programs have been held constant or have been reduced. Private relief programs face reduced budgets and increased demands. The number of Americans who are poor, unemployed, and hungry is on the rise. According to the Census Bureau reports, poverty reached a 27-year high in 1991, with 35.7 million Americans living in absolute poverty or below the federally established poverty line. Of these poor, 14.3 million are children under the age of 18 years. An increase of nearly 4 million children since the 1970s. Furthermore, according to a recent report on child poverty from the Tufts University Center on Hunger, Poverty, and Nutrition Policy, if current trends continue, by the year 2012, more than 20 million children will be poor in the United States of America. And my friends, we are talking about the future of our country. In addition to those who are officially classified as poor, there is also a growing contingent of Americans, 30 million according to a new book entitled The Forgotten Americans, 30 million, million who are living in relative poverty. That is, individuals who are employed and live above the official poverty line and yet who are barely making it. An economic fact of life pointing to the inadequate indices used by the federal government to define poverty. Consequently, Hunger is also on the rise. Nearly one-eighth of the U.S. population suffers from hunger, a 50% increase since 1985 from 20 million 
to 30 million in 1990. Noteworthy and foreboding for our future, fully half of those who suffer from hunger are our children. And being a teacher and a principal in my past life, I know you only have one chance at childhood. That's when you grow and develop your capacity for intellectual learning as well. At the same time, however, we need to look the growth in the poverty, the growth in the hungry in our country. At the same time, however, federal programs fall short of providing adequate relief. Food stamp programs, and food stamps are a sensitive barometer to the poverty and hunger in our country. Food stamp program participation reached an all-time high average of 25.3 million people per month in 1992. Despite the increased number of food stamp recipients, the Tufts University Center on Hunger and Poverty and Nutrition Policy <coughs> indicated in a 1992 report that <coughs> thanks, 6 million people in poverty received no food stamps. 10 million people in poverty who received food stamps still suffer from hunger because the program doesn't adequately meet dietary needs. And 5 million people living above the officially defined poverty level and not qualified to receive food stamps experience hunger due to household budget constraints. Likewise, the WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children, designed to improve the health of mothers and babies, serves only three-fifths of the estimate 8.5 million eligible women, infants, and children. Unlike AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Children, and Medicaid, WIC is not an entitlement program. The program continues to be inadequately funded despite evidence as detailed by the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities that WIC services to pregnant women more than pay for themselves in one year through reduced Medicaid expenditures. For every dollar spent in WIC, we save up to $4.21 on health costs. Program participants in WIC also exhibit one-third fewer occurrences of late fetal death decreased risk of low birth rates, and children with better health development and school performance. For full funding of nutritional programs such as WIC makes economic sense, if not moral sense. Another government program no longer providing resources adequate to serving its purpose is TFAP, the Temporary Emergency Food Assistance Program, a program of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. TFAP was originally established in 1981 as a means of using up surplus grain and dairy products which the U.S. government was purchasing from farmers and storing. The surplus was put to use by distributing it to hungry Americans. In the mid-80s, however, the government's agricultural policy changed from one of price supports which had resulted in government-owned and stored surpluses to one based on market supply and demand. The result was that the surplus commodities available through TFAP dwindled from seven food products at the program's height to two surplus food products, butter and cornmeal, for fiscal year 1993. As the supply of commodities based on government policy changes and have, has declined, demand for emergency food assistance has grown. By an estimate, 26% in 1991 and 18% in 1992, according to a study by the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we know that Mayor Scheibel in St. Paul is instrumental in gathering the statistics for the mayor's conference. The mayor's 1992 study also reports that 21% of requests for emergency assistance 
goes unmet in our cities, and 46% are inadequately met in terms of the quantity of food provided, not to mention the nutritional quality of food provided to those seeking emergency food assistance. Ironically, not surprisingly, the department which funds both the food stamp program and TFAP, the United States Department of Agriculture, appears to be a particularly dramatic contributor to the paradox of hunger in the land of plenty. In 1992, the USDA received nearly $78 billion, a figure equal to the value of all the crops produced each year by the U.S. farmers. A 16-month investigation conducted by the Kansas City Star and published in 1991, December of 1991, revealed departmental waste, mismanagement, and fraud on a wide scale. For instance, in 1991, $10 billion was spent on programs paying farmers to grow crops. The result was a huge crop surplus for which USDA spent additional funds purchasing the surplus and storing it in warehouses. At the same time, $2 billion was spent on programs inducing farmers to take land out of production in order to reduce surpluses. In the 1980s, in an attempt to boost milk prices, the USDA spent millions of dollars buying and slaughtering 1.6 million dairy cows. The result was a drop in beef prices, at, and at the same time, the Agricultural Research Service was researching hormones to increase milk production in cows. Now, the United States Department of Agriculture was founded by Abraham Lincoln. It was named the People's Department. We need to refocus the USDA to bring about justice for the farmers and food production and distribution for all. <coughs> As a result of the ongoing inadequacy of government assistance programs, private efforts such as Bread for the World, the Food Research and Action Center, or FRAC, Oxfam, Food for the Poor, and Second Harvest are taking on increasingly significant roles in the fight to alleviate hunger, and I use the word alleviate consciously. Since its establishment in 1979, Second Harvest has grown from a 13-member organization of food banks, which distributed 2.5 million pounds in its first year. Now, Second Harvest National Network of Food Banks includes 185 food banks serving all 50 states, distributing more than 500 million pounds of donated food for the hungry through a network of 50,000 agencies of soup kitchens, pantries, shelters, congregate feeding programs. Second Harvest National Food Bank Network is the nation's largest charitable, non-governmental, food distribution system in the nation. It is one of the largest U.S. charities as rated by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. In recent years, changing dynamics in the food industry, including an increase in belt-tightening measures with focused efforts to reduce production waste, on-time inventories, has resulted in a slowdown in the traditional food donations to the Second Harvest Network. In response, Second Harvest and many network food banks are exploring new initiatives to expand existing resources as well as to develop new product sources. We try very hard because to say to a hungry person, we have no food, is unacceptable to us. Many of these initiatives enable food banks to utilize products that they were previously unable to handle. For instance, in 1990, through the assistance of the Minneapolis and St. Paul food banks, Second Harvest enlarged the value-added processing program, which we refer to as VAP. 
The VAP program converts bulk quantities of donated raw commodities, such as vegetables, pasta, fruit, grains, and juice, into more user-friendly finished products. The value added is the processing to extend the shelf life of the product, convert bulk quantities into convenient size packs, and or to process raw, raw commodities. Pillsbury, located here, has been a partner in helping us process food that would otherwise go to waste. Uh, Cargill Cares program is initiating some leadership in this particular program as well. Under a similar strategy, the Spokane Food Bank in the state of Washington, with the assistance of local manufacturers, established a professional, fully automated packaging line for processing bulk products. As a result, the Spokane Food Bank is able to handle previously unmanageable quantities of frozen vegetables, as well as to process more quickly and efficiently bulk quantities of cereal, pasta, beans, and other products, which they then distribute out to the network of food banks. Another innovative project, the Breed Love Dehydration Plant, is currently under development by the South Plains Food Bank in Lubbock, Texas. The purpose of the project is to preserve produce that otherwise would go to waste by being left in the fields, culled at packing sheds, dumped because of all of economic market conditions, or turned down by processors. At full operation in the future, the South Plains Food Bank estimates they will process by dehydration and freezing 19 million pounds of vegetables annually and distribute 39,000 vegetable servings per day through the food bank to charitable agencies like soup kitchens and pantries in the area. One final example of the initiatives identified uh, in identifying new sources of food for the hungry is the Harvest for the Hungry project undertaken by the Northwest Indiana Food Bank in Gary, Indiana. Under this project, the Northwest Indiana Food Bank used 37 acres of land loaned by a local farmer to grow 13 different crops. Volunteers harvested the crops, half of which were distributed uh, by the food bank to feed the hungry, and the other half of which were sold to local produce markets to underwrite the costs of the project. In spite of the scope of private relief efforts, and the Second Harvest Network is only one example. Hunger and poverty persist in this land of plenty. Nonprofit organizations can only address pieces of the problem and alleviate the symptoms of poverty. While government programs alone will not solve the problems of hunger and poverty in the US, increased access to government aid is an important part of the short-term solution. The first step in reducing and ultimately eradicating the number of Americans who suffer from poverty and hunger requires provision of resources adequate to meet basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. The millions of people who are hungry but are ineligible to receive food stamps because of the inadequacy of the definition of poverty and the millions of women and children who are ineligible for the WIC program but don't receive benefits due to inadequate program funding highlight the need for fundamental change in government policy development and program administration. According to the new administration, there is a call for a new era of hope. As part of the recent inaugural festivities, Second Harvest and corporate donors nationwide like Pillsbury Company and General Mills in Minnesota joined to sponsor the National Inaugural Food Drive to help raise public awareness of the hunger crisis in America. Although the food drive raised more than one million pounds of food to feed the hungry, we need more than a symbolic gesture to solve the problem. The solution to the problem of hunger in our midst rests on cooperation between the public and private sectors. Given references by the Clinton administration about hunger and child poverty in recent speeches, we are more optimistic 
because the new administration seems to recognize the importance and significance of current problems facing hungry, poor, and unemployed Americans. Hunger is an illness in American society. It is an illness that is 100% curable. It is my hope that we can put partisan politics aside and have a consensus about what we as a people will do about the hunger issue. More soup kitchens, more pantries, larger food banks are not the solution to the hunger problem. Poverty is a moral dilemma for believing people. Hunger diminishes us as a society. Henry Kissinger challenged the World Food Conference in 1974, nearly two decades ago, with these words. The profound promise of our era is that for the first time, we may have the technical capacity to free people from the scourge of hunger. Therefore, today, we must proclaim a bold objective that within a decade, no child will go hungry, that no family will fear for its next day's bread, and no human beings, future and capacities will be stunted by malnutrition." End of quote. The presence of hunger in the land of plenty is a paradox that need not be tolerated as we move to the 21st century. Thank you. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our guest today is Ms. Christine Vladimirov, President and CEO of the Second Harvest National Food Bank Network, who has been speaking to us about hunger in the land of plenty, a paradox. At this point, I would like to invite those of you in our audience who must leave to do so, and I hope many of you will remain for our question and answer period. In a few moments, Ms. Vladimirov will return to the podium to answer questions from our audience. If you have a question, I invite you to write it down on the yellow card that you will find in the pew rack or that one of the ushers handed to you as you entered the sanctuary and to hand it to one of the ushers. If you are listening on our radio audience and have a question, you may call that question into the church and the number for the church is area code 612-332-3421. Today's questions will be sorted by Jim Peter and Wenda Moore. And now, Ms. Vladimirov, will you return to the podium, please? And I'd like to begin with this question. Could you comment on the situation in Somalia? I know you have been speaking about hunger in our own nation, but do you think the U.S. military involvement has solved the food distribution problems there? What problems do you foresee? I think as Americans, we need to continue to respond generously and compassionately to hunger wherever we find it, whether in our local community, uh, in our country, or in uh, the global village. And so I don't think that we should pit domestic or international hunger against each other. It can't be an either or, it's a both and, because we have enough food to do it. So I am very proud of the efforts of the, the U.S. to move into that situation for the delivery of food. However, I am concerned uh, about the political stability of that nation that will en enable the food to continue to reach the most needy and to build that country as it needs to be built politically. Thank you. Um, a related question. How does the former Soviet Union keep feeding its people while changing over to a market economy? Do we have advice or do you have advice for them? The, uh, question of food production and food distribution in the former uh, independent states that constituted the Soviet Union is a critical issue for the, um, for the world to look at. We were uh, petitioned in 1991, and I'm talking Second Harvest, uh, by someone to help 
St. Petersburg, Russia found a food bank there because of the needs of uh, the Russian people. And we provided the technical assistance and sent the executive director from our Atlanta food bank there to help them set up the structure. Uh, I know that there are grants to help uh, put volunteerism and uh, the social service agencies in the newly independent states of the Soviet Union to enable them to meet those needs. But as you know, because of the Cold War, both on our side and on uh, the Soviet Union side, we have spent the last decades building the industrial military complex, and Russia has left to one side food production, food distribution, and so there is not an infrastructure to grow the food, to distribute the food, to store the food. So it is going to take a while, and I think, again, if we believe that the human family is one, we need to give assistance there as well. Thank you. Could you comment please on the current administration's new economic proposals as they relate to hunger and what efforts do you think Clinton and his advisors should make to eradicate hunger and poverty? As I know what the uh, new uh, president's economic package can, uh, has, I'm very encouraged by it and let me just give that to you. Uh, there is the Women, Infants, and Children's uh, program, which has been a pilot project since 1974. In the new economic package, Clinton's administration proposes to make that fully funded by 1996. And so it is proposing an increase of $71 million for that program uh, in 1993, and then uh, incrementally getting to 1996, where it can cover all pregnant women, infants, and children up to the age of five. And that is the program where I say, for every dollar we spend there, we save up to $4.21 in Medicaid and medical uh, expenses. Uh, the child and adult care food program uh, is also uh, targeted for an increase of $56 million, and that's reflected in the full funding for Head Start, where the uh, preschoolers will get nutritious meals as part of that. Uh, TFAP is also targeted for another $23 million for the purchase of commodities, which will make that emergency food uh, product available through, these, uh, through food banks and Head Starts. So I am cautiously optimistic about the programs that have been targeted because they are the effective programs that really do make a difference in hunger and poverty in the, in the country. Thank you. Someone in our audience asks, is there a relationship between malnutrition and overpopulation? Or in other words, when hunger is addressed, do birth rates go down? That is a delicate balance between hunger and overpopulation. In the U.S., it is not overpopulation that is causing hunger. Uh, in the global village, it is not overpopulation that is causing hunger. I have been in, a, in various meetings, both internationally and nationally, where anti-hunger anti leaders talk about what are the causes of hunger and never is the lack of food mentioned as a cause of hunger. Now certainly I'm not an expert on population. Uh, I do think that there is a sustainable uh, agricultural uh, that needs to be uh, in some kind of ratio with the population that it has to support. And I know that there will be uh, a UN conference on population in 94, 95, and I, I will be anxiously following that. But I just came back from attending the uh, UN's conference on, international conference on nutrition, and population was never mentioned neither in Geneva or in Rome, Italy, as we discussed the need for adequate uh, food security. Was that mentioned as a drawback to feeding all the people at this time? Thank you. Another question, how much scientific evidence is there concerning early learning and hunger? There is a great deal of evidence showing that within the first five years, 95% of the physical growth that enables intellectual development occurs. And so if a child in those first five years does not have the adequate nutrition for that physical growth that is uh, instrumental for uh, intellectual capacity, that that life has been uh, forever um, limited. And so an investment in nutrition in our children is essential because, again, you never get a second chance at childhood. Uh, 
that, that nutrition has to come especially within those first five years and then through school breakfast programs school lunch programs that has to be continued to be nurtured and our summer programs because schools are out those same children need to be fed and therefore we can then build our educational programs on the fact that we have not hungry children sitting in front of us, but well-fed children who are eager to learn. Thank you. Could you comment on the food stamps program, particularly the number of people needing food stamps, which has increased in the last decade? How do we get to a point where we do not need that program any longer? I think that it's very important that we begin to take a look at uh, all of our programs, including food stamps. Now, you have to know that the major problem with the uh, food stamp program is the federal definition of what poverty is. And, uh, and the food consumption survey that was taken 38 years ago. Our food stamp program is based on the research of 38 years ago, where they decided that a third of a person's um, income sh is spent on food. And so then they multiplied what they thought was their thrifty food plan, which the USDA came up with. So according to the food stamp formula, uh, the food stamps would last you a month if you could have the time and the nutritional uh, education to shop and prepare meals that would cost 76 cents per person per meal per day. Uh, and that doesn't work in our economy at this time. So uh, I believe that we have to be able to structure programs that are really intentional in lifting people out of poverty and not keeping them in poverty. So uh, people who accept employment that is not sufficient to live on lose their food stamps, lose their Medicaid, lose their child care. What incentive is there to start lifting yourself out of poverty if the benefits are cut off immediately and rather than gradually? So I think that is the basic problem with the food stamp program. Uh, our minimum wage, uh, it is estimated at this point in research that for a family of four, two adults and two children, the person would have to be uh, earning $6.70 an hour to meet the poverty level of $13,950. Now we know we have people who are working full time, all year round, at minimum wage, no benefits, and they're not classified as poor. And they are the people that we're increasingly seeing in our soup kitchens, our pantries, who are using the food banks to sustain life. The other big factor that we don't talk about when we're talking about hungry is, hunger is the fact that housing subsidies from 1981 to the present have decreased by 70%. And that means a poor person 46% of people who are poor are paying more than 70% of their income towards rent. And so that leaves less for utilities and less for food, and they too are in the soup kitchens and pantries throughout your community. Thank you. Another question, could you please describe the relationship between Second Harvest and its member food banks? How does Second Harvest work? Second Harvest is a network of food banks. Each food bank is separately incorporated as, as a 501c3 charity. Each food bank's strength is on the support it gathers from its local community. So we in Chicago don't found food banks. You in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, in Hibbings, find, found food banks. And you continue to support it through your financial efforts, through your food drives, through your volunteer efforts. Second Harvest in Chicago, we try to coordinate donations from a national company such as General Mills, Pillsbury, Cargill, uh, Quaker Oats, um, Kellogg's. Uh, they call us when they have production overruns, when they have food that is safe for consumption but uh, is close to a code date expiration. Uh, they call Second Harvest in Chicago we find out where it's located. We call the food banks in that vicinity and say, we have 36 trailer loads of X, Y, or Z. Come and get it. The food banks, in turn, are experienced in warehousing, food handling, and distribution 
of the food to the agencies in the local area. So we have with us the executive director of the Minneapolis Food Bank, located here. Uh, her food bank serves over 200 agencies in this area with the food that comes in through Second Harvest and through local donations here as well. Thank you. And a related question, what is the greatest challenge facing Second Harvest at this time? The greatest challenge facing Second Harvest would be, first of all, believe it or not, to continue to convince Americans that we have hunger in our communities, whether they be inner city, suburbs, or rural communities. The second greatest challenge is that the food industry has been very generous to us in terms of donations. However, there are trends in the industry that are saying to us that in the future there will be less food donated to us. Uh, there is what they t talk about is uh, total quality management, which means there will be less production mistakes, which is the food we get. Uh, there is computerization of the process, so it's on-time inventory, and so we don't get the emptying out of warehouses at the end of a quarter. There is better packaging, so there is uh, less damaged packages and dented cans, and that's what we get as well. All this food is very safe for consumption, uh, but it doesn't sell in the retail outlet, and so we get it and we can move it. Uh, so the, those traditional sources of food uh, may diminish in the future. And so that is why we're working on the farming projects, the dehydration project, the processing projects, so that we can use food that, again, is being wasted, and we can get it to the hungry. So it's trying to be as creative, inventive as the first food banks were in the late 70s to continue that pioneer spirit, because we can't fail. Hungry people depend on us. And we'll be there as the interim, as the Band-Aid, until you and I together get the political will and find the right social policies so that we reweave re re the country of America where everyone can prosper. Thank you. A question that was phoned in from our listening audience. I'm a single parent, this person says, with small children. I make too much money to qualify for food stamps, but after mortgage payments and monthly bills, I do not have enough money to buy food. I would appreciate your help and comments on this. I certainly can hear what you are saying. Uh, we in Second Harvest and through our agencies uh, have a commitment to our donors to say that our food will get to hungry people. Uh, and I don't doubt that you have budget constrictions. Uh, you can investigate the kind of human service and social service agencies that are in your area. And in addition to Second Harvest, there are other agencies such as Share USA, where they allow people of, of very uh, tight incomes to uh, pay a certain amount of money, and they uh, try to buy wholesale so that the, those families that go in for this co-op can buy food at a reduced price. Our food is never for sale. The recipient is never charged uh, because our clients are mean-tested through our agency. So uh, I would advise the person to research the, the social services available in that local uh, community and to see what might match their particular situation. Thank you. Another question. Some writers, such as Francis Moore LePay in Diet for a Small Planet, argue that the U.S. needs to change its eating habits in order to solve hunger problems here and around the world, for, uh, for instance, by eating lower on the food chain. Could you comment on this, please? Yes, I think as we join in with the, the nutrition community uh, and see what we consume in terms of meat and the grain and land that is uh, necessary to sustain that, that type of diet, I think we need to look at uh, our diet and look at our agricultural uh, processes and the use of pesticides and chemicals and all of that. Uh, I really think that uh, we need to be very conscious of what effect our lifestyle has on the lifestyle of the, uh, of the world. However, it is a complex situation. Simply saying, eating less meat, consuming fewer uh, products uh, of a, a different type. That's not the answer. We, we need to use all of our know-how to say how can we sustain life and sustain life with dignity for everyone on this planet. And it's going to take 
many uh, sectors of society dealing with that problem and not simply saying cutting back on this is the solution. Thank you. This person asks, what can I, an ordinary person, do to help alleviate hunger? Do you have any specific suggestions? Yes, I do. I firmly believe that not, none of us have to be frustrated in the, uh, with the specter of hunger that we're facing either domestically or internationally. Hunger is 100% curable, and everyone can make a difference. You can donate a dollar to a food bank or second harvest, and we can leverage 100 dollars worth of food for it. You can conduct a food drive in your congregation, your Boy Scout, Girl Scout troop, and donate that food to the local food bank. You can organize or give an hour or two hours to help sort food at the local food bank. You can donate your time to serve soup or pack bags at the pantry. You can learn about hunger and talk about it to your relatives and friends so that hunger becomes an issue that people are sensitive to. Let me tell you a story. Uh, there was a, uh, a classroom group that came down to a local food bank in Tennessee. And the classroom group was shown what uh, was taught about hunger and how a food bank works and where the food goes to the agency and who are the hungry in our country. Well, it was months after that classroom trip to the food bank that a little boy was having his birthday. And his mother said, well, what do you want for your birthday? Who do you want me to invite? We'll have a little party. And the, and the boy said very thoughtfully, you know what? I'd like to have my birthday party on Saturday at the food bank. Everybody could bring some food. We could sort food for an hour or two and help the food bank and then send out for pizza. And that's what I want for my birthday party. Now, Whoever arranged that classroom trip to the food bank did a tremendous favor to bringing up children to be aware of who is hungry and how they can help. You can help. I would, I would urge you to call someone that is working in the area of hunger and say, what can I do? It may be simply getting the word out. Thank you. That's a great story. Um, a final question. If the government is not able to solve the problem alone, do you believe that it will take both a public and private effort in our country? Yes, I do not think this should be a government only. I think it needs to be the government, business, and the private sector. And there are many not-for-profit programs that are efficient and effective, and they can be model programs, so we do not build up bureaucracy. We want the dollars to go to food to feed the hungry until people can earn their daily bread by the jobs that we create here in the United States. I don't know any better place to eat than around the family table in your dining room. And I think we've got to achieve that for all Americans. Uh, there's a, a saying that a Peruvian woman said, she said, when the stomach is empty, love grows weary. We can't grow weary in this fight against hunger because too many people depend on us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vladimirov. <laughs>